Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. This is what makes you a Christian. Okay? So that's what we're going to start with. That's what we agree upon. That's what makes us together. That's what is what aligns our hearts. That's what unites us and binds us. So let's read these together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the good stuff. Okay? So, I want to be clear. I don't think anything, in fact, I promise, nothing that we're talking about during this series of Lesson Religion is found in the book. You know why? Because we've had a tendency to make the things that aren't as important as we think they are seem very important. So, tonight, we're going to be message tonight. I really think that uh, so notice we're not live streaming tonight so wheels are off. So nobody that's listening has any idea what you're looking at just to be clear. So I'm safe and I can absolutely plead that I have no idea what you're talking about. So Brittany, Brittany cannot be blamed for this. Um, I decided to take a little bit of liberty um, and come up with uh, uh, maybe some alternate slides that I, I felt like I might want to refer back to or insert if ever there's a point where I see people searching in their churches for things to throw at me. This is kind of a fallback. 
It's, it's like Jim Gaffigan. You can be standing up there. If he loses the crowd, all he needs is a Hot Pocket joke, and everybody's back. So, um, okay. So, um, this, is, this is a really what we think about when we think about the devil. the devil looked like, this is him. And you can't really see it very well. Over in the corner, because it's kind of dark, this is supposed to be Adam and Eve huddled in the corner. And so you've got Satan. He's a very pensive uh, Slewfoot at that moment. Um, I don't know if he has if he has two poses. That's the thinker, and he is a stinker. Uh, so I don't really know how this works, but he's debating something clearly. Adam and Eve are neatly frolicking in the corner, um, and this is kind of what we have got back. I mean, this is, I didn't have to look for these. All I had to do was Google images Satanism. That is what it is. But I, it, it, I felt like that, you know, I was, I, I, it was worth the time. Uh, so I, I, just, I just cranked up my social on my computer browser and just let it go. But, you know, when you see this, this is what people think. And for the most part, the, the, the theology about Paul or about the devil has been that he is like some type of, um, in many cases, people, well, actually, this is maybe the most angelic you see him because shortly after this is when they started finding him with a pitchfork and a horn and a pointy tail and he's red all of a sudden because everybody knows that red is the color of evil. Roxanne, I guess, I don't know how that happened, but it did. And so he rules from a, a literally, this is, I looked up, this is what was taught in the 18 and 1900s in our country, that he rules from a brimstone throne in heaven. Like a warden in a prison, he sits on this brimstone throne, a master that everybody's henchmen are scared of. In some weird way, it's like him and God have an out where they don't get along, but but God says, I'll let you rule hell as long as you take care of doing my bidding of punishing the people who didn't follow me. This is a nice one. Uh, this, it, it, and uh, the, the letter's a little dark. Um, but the topic is actually what the, and the subtopic is what the hell are you doing? Um, and so the, so, and I kind of like the, I kind of like the, I don't know, like the Billy Gibbons ZZ Top God that's like, you know, uh, they're, they're fighting it out. I don't really, really know. Um, but. Brittany came up with this beautiful, beautiful slide that's actually we're going to be using the whole time. So, all right, so hopefully that stuff will help put on that aside. Um, <clears throat> hell. N.T. Wright has noted, N.T. Wright, for those of you who are not familiar, N.T. Wright is the almost 21st century scholar um, and, and theologian, in, in my opinion, who's quite an interesting, brilliant theologian, I should say. Um, N.T. Wright. 
noted that hell seems to be a particular theological obsession for Americans in the way it isn't for others throughout the world. The idea of hell captures our imagination and pulls out of us a combination of fear and punitive judgmental satisfaction. I believe it has to do with what I call our Puritan's culture. In America, we're all Puritans. Even the atheists are Puritans. In fact, if you were to ask an atheist who says they don't believe in God to describe the God they don't believe in, they would describe to you the Puritan God that they don't even believe in. So even the people that don't believe there's a God still believe in that God that's been described as sitting up there, he's angry, he's moments away from just cutting you loose and sending you to the lunch. That God, the Puritan God that we've kind of inherited, um, is even the, the thousands of people that don't even believe in God. So within our faith, heaven and hell has become the organizing principle at the center of American pop Christianity today. Heaven and hell is the organizing center of the American culture. Hell in Puritan Christianity, turned postmodern pop Christianity, is basically this. Hell is God's eternal torture chamber and all non-Christians are tortured by God for all of eternity. Don't need to get back there in the picture. Everybody's still alive. Okay, take a few breaths. If you feel like it, you should just breathe and you'll be okay. Sharpen your stones. You'll be fine. <clears throat> Others teach a version of this hell where the demons act as the executioners of God's wrath upon sinners in hell and carry out their eternal torture. But is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? There was a time that I believed something like that. Maybe not in so many words, but then I walked my theology all the way through of what eternity meant. This is in fact where I lie. And yet this idea of hell stood in stark contrast to the nature of God I knew and the nature of God I saw in the flesh of Jesus. Was God in fact punitive or retributive in his judgment? Does the nature of God change after you die? There's going to be some of those, so I'm just not going to answer them. But if God is good, just, merciful and forgiving, does the nature of God change after you die? These are all thoughts that I have wrestled with my entire life. And tried to silence in my heart for as long as I can remember. So, for the last few years, I embarked on a quest to understand at least the basics. Where does my theology on hell come from? How did I get it? And is it accurate to the scriptures in the best way possible? One of the biggest things that um, really spurred this in me um, a couple of years ago was um, this thought of the age of accountability. Anybody ever heard of the age of accountability? Okay. So the age of accountability was this thought 
that there we can't imagine our children having to meet the same standards as adults. And in some way, they're not accountable for their actions. So we, it, I, I spoke with someone today that in his opinion, he was taught from time he was a child that if, that if we don't accept the Eucharist, get baptized, speak in tongues, and read your Bible every day, you're going to hell. So I asked him, what about the children? And he said, well, no, they're not ready for God until the age of accountability. So the age of accountability is like the asterisk to our get in or get out of hell game. And the age of accountability is something that we came up with. It is a non-biblical, non-biblical theology that we came up with to deal with our own recent doctrine about what hell is. And so when the problem is when we create a monstrous theology and we also create a monster. And because we couldn't stomach treating our children to the monster, we had to find a problem. And so I, I, I was uh, talking to Pastor Bill about this. He came up today and, and I said, you know, um, it's interesting because I've had to ask myself some really hard questions because at some point, and I don't know why, I really don't get it. I'm assuming it has to do with something in America I think where because you turn become a teenager and you get rebellious, there's like some trigger that happens there that you rebel since you're a teen. But there is the Billy Graham sanctioned age of 12 at the age of accountability. I don't know why, but it's there. So I believe it. Like as soon as... So between 12 and 13, something happens. But between 12 and 13, as a parent, you have a responsibility to hurry up and get your kids saved. Here's the kicker, though. Guys, if this is our theology, and I'm going to say something shocking on the surface, if that actually is our theology, then the most compassionate and loving thing we could do for your child would be to save them from hell. Kill them just before they can be held accountable. Why? Any way you can ensure it, they're eternally in hell. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how grotesque our doctrine becomes if you carry it all the way out. As a parent, if you really believe that, the most scary thing you could do is prevent them from having to make that decision and maybe because what if they turn 13 and they're in a Catholic church that's where we have the chance to get them to church to pray the sinner's prayer forever? See, the problem is when your doctrine and your theology is a slammed door that doesn't keep the rain out, does it? So before we get to the various theological theories about afterlife punishment, we need to make something that's becoming very clear. Theology regarding afterlife punishment is not central to Christian orthodoxy. It is not central to Christian orthodoxy. Theology regarding afterlife punishment is not central. There are various opinions about what happens, but the only thing we have to say about afterlife punishment to be unorthodox in our theology is what's stated in the Apostles' Creed that we just read, which is Jesus rises again, living and the dead. 
So, at the end of our time now, if you decide that you don't know what you believe, or if you have an opinion on it all, that's absolutely fine. The only thing you're required to believe is that Christ will judge the living and the dead. That's it. So if you go, I don't know, it's too weird, it's too hard, it's too much, I don't understand it, I don't care to understand it, guess what? You don't. The only thing you have to agree upon to follow Jesus to the end of day is that he will judge the living and the dead. That's it. So hopefully that's a little bit of a breath of relief. Um, Next thing. say, I don't know, Christ will judge the living and the dead. And what you find in the early church is from St. Augustine to St. Gregory of Nyssa, who each held various views on the opposing ends of the spectrum, there was a common respect for one another, and they used language describing one another as brothers in the faith. These guys, Augustine and St. Gregory of Nyssa, had, I mean, like, as you can get opposing opinions and they never called one another a heretic they never said that their doctrine was ungodly or unscriptural they spoke about one another as brothers St. Gregory of Nyssa believed as we'll talk about here in a minute what's called universalism universalism states that in the end all will be saved Augustine is where we get our Americanized version of hell or which means eternal conscious torment. If you don't accept Jesus, you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn forever. And yet, interestingly enough, the language they used was so profound and so clear. I mean, and I love, because at the end of the day, if you believe, you can find out. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to go through quickly, I'm going to try to do like three commonly held beliefs about hell and the afterlife, both from the Bible and the early church. I'm going to do that as quickly as I can. I'm going to do my best to not in any way color it with my opinion with one exception, and you'll figure that out. Um, And I'm going to do my best to not tell you what I believe, because I'm just going to tell you right before we get going, I don't know that I have myself fitting into any of this exactly. I don't fit any of this description. And here's another thing. You can, with the Bible, back up each of these systems of of belief as completely and totally scriptural. So, before we get there, before anybody rolls on their high horse, just know that there is so much humility needed in your faith in Jesus. And that's where you really get the rubber hits the road. Because my favorite thing that I, in all of my studies, Von Balthasar, which we'll talk about later, my favorite thing that he said is, the only person that you should ever be able to teach a master's degree in hell is me. That's the level of humility. I'm not saying I'm amazing. What I'm saying is the level of humility saying, I'm in need of a savior. I'm in need of a savior. I deserve whatever might be out there, but because of his mercy, he didn't give us what we had to get in the door. Because in the end, Jesus swallowed up the hell. We are included, right? That's the goal. We know who our Lord is. So, 
interesting uh, let me back up a little bit if you you find as you study history a division of sorts has happened in eastern and western versions of that story the western versions give the idea that most of us have been brought up with that there were two types of people the righteous and the wicked or the good and the bad they would go to two different places heaven was in the presence of god hell was the absence of him and this teaching can be substantiated in scripture the idea that there's good people and bad people christians and non-christians good people go to a certain place bad people go to a certain place however this was not the most common thought at the time of jesus and even for these centuries after jesus what they taught from an eastern perspective and this is where i find it very complimentary is that uh everyone the basis of this is that everyone is salted with fire jesus says this in mark chapter 9 everyone is salted with fire paul references as well stating that we will all go through the fire of judgment so they actually believe the eastern orthodox belief was that god himself is heaven and hell because god is a consuming fire so the eastern eastern orthodox actually believed that God himself was heaven and hell and within God himself was the consuming fire of his love and if you embraced his love his consuming fire fell to you as well if you rejected his love his consuming fire fell to you as well I'm not saying that's what I believe I'm just telling you there's more out there and you can substantiate that absolutely absolutely substantiate that hell is mentioned in the new testament twice actually um and almost all of the twelve are mentioned by jesus but the bible actually talks far less about the afterlife than we've imagined the bible talks about heaven and hell far less than we could talk about heaven and hell across sacred generations we find that many of the heaven hell verses are not speaking about what happens after you die at all Many of them are talking about very literal elements of judgment, which here's the thing, the thing we all have to stop start don't stop with agreeing upon is Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. Nobody gets away with anything. Your stuff is going to get dealt with. In the face of Jesus, the dead, your stuff is going to get dealt with. The beauty of it is, in my opinion, that's where you find in the face of Jesus, the deep stuff is judged and dealt with, but will not with his mercy. That's why it says in Revelation, he'll wipe every tear from your eye. Why? Because you're seeing my stuff with Jesus Christ. And he says, but I have a better message for you. My mercy is far better than your stuff. And before you think this is too crazy, let me just ask you, what is the judgment and burning of the Lord that we experience now upon the earth? It's to do what to you? To condemn you or punish you or to redeem and restore you? So does the judgment of God change after you die? Some of the passages that we find about the past are about the past, essentially afterlife. We'll move to heaven and hell in the Bible are poetic, some are figurative, some are very literal in a now versus past, which was physical, the physical life that we're in. But few speak of eternal afterlife here. 
In fact, it is fascinating to read in the Old Testament an almost complete and total disinterest in the afterlife. He has lived. Did you know every human being has lived? Like every good Christian knows this, but C.S. Lewis said that you cannot find any theology whatsoever about the afterlife, heaven or hell, and use the Old Testament to substantiate it. Because the Old Testament, does, the Jewish people gave no regard to afterlife issues. They just didn't think about it. It was not important to them. In fact, you want to know who afterlife issues was important to? The pagan nations that surrounded Israel. Heaven and hell was a fascination of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians. The Egyptians, what do you think they were doing when they built the pyramids? It was completely afterlife focused. So in my opinion, I think part of the reason why the Israel people of Israel were so disinterested in afterlife issues because they were inundated it from inundated with it from the pagan cultures and they said, that's not who my God is. So you cannot and have no ability to, from the Old Testament, come up with an idea of what they thought about heaven and hell because they don't care. They're just not interested. So you come to the New Testament, and I, and I did not give you um, a, 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 a lot of verses regarding the Old Testament. We're not even going to hit all the verses regarding that. By the way, today I pulled this down from 18 pages of papers. If anybody would like the full Neil Beal, just write me and I'll send you all my notes. I'll be happy to do that. But, but I, I think this has around 80 hours of research of study. So what you find as you look at afterlife issues is you think of heaven and hell as the stock and trade of religion. But this was not the case with the writers of Hebrew Scripture. Heaven and hell were not a focus. For Hebrew, the word hell was the word sheol, simply meaning the place of the dead. So even when you look at the Old Testament, anytime it says hell, it has nothing to do with whatever images, maybe similar to what I posted up on the screen, that we conjure up. It just meant the place of the dead. You know why? Because they didn't know what happened, and they didn't try to come up with a doctrine about what did happen. So even when David says, if I make my bed in hell, no one's talking about hell. That was their doctrine. Just the dead. Whatever happens in, after the dead, that's it, and it just kind of moves on. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do that? Wouldn't it be cool if we could un-eschatologicalize our religion to the degree that everything isn't weighted with a gospel-laden heaven or hell decision, but a decision life or death. Because Jesus didn't come to give heaven or hell. Jesus came to give life over death. That's what Jesus came for. So when we talk about hell, we're talking about a lot of things. Number one, the nature of God. Would God create people only to sentence millions and billions to eternal punishment torment? Number two, the human soul is spirit. What is eternal? Is our soul more like a rock that can endure literal torment forever and remain? Or is our soul like paper that is burned up? Or is our soul like metal that is flamed like you would take scissors and sanitize them with a flame? Is our soul flamed with sword and sand? The dross burnt off of the soul crushed by the fire. These are all things the early church had to come up with. 
the four-letter word hell has become a word that carries with it so much weight that over the centuries, it has picked up all of these other things that are read into many of the texts. And it becomes far removed from what actually is says in the Bible. It's like hell has become a catch-all word for however we imagine that hell comes to mean in our minds. And we apply to it everything from Dante's Inferno to Chick Tracks to scary movies to hell houses to heaven's hotel signs to art and poems. And do you realize that the single most powerful and, and trend-setting um, uh, item in our hell theology is Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno was actually the first act of a poetic series called the Divine Comedy. It was penned by demons. Yet if you actually study, that single word influenced what we think happens in hell more than anything else. The idea of these torture chambers where people are in cells and you've got, you know, chains and ragged clothing. Uh, all of that kind of stuff is, is, comes from Dante's Inferno. But that's nowhere in Scripture. Let me just be clear. The idea that God or the devil tortures you in hell for all eternity is never, ever, ever found in God's Word. So we're going to quickly hit the three primary views of hell. This is from a much later guy called Cosimus Zeno. Um, these are the, 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 the dialed down versions. These are the three primary views of hell in the early church. So following the book of Acts for the first century or two, these are what people believe. Number one, what they call ECT or eternal conscious torment. Eternal conscious torment is the thing that is the most commonly believed. If you're an American, you probably believe eternal conscious torment, even if you don't know that's what you believe. So if you think that non-Christians get to heaven, if you've heard or taught that non-Christians go to hell and are punished by eternal flames forever, that they can feel and that burning and, and there's punishing that happens there, you have just taught eternal conscious torment. when I started studying this, I got really, really ashamed. So I had to kind of come to grips with it and stop kind of asking the question. Because it's very shameful to think some of this stuff. But when you say it out loud, that's what you have been taught. That's what I grew up believing. And if you somebody walked up to me and said, do you believe that, that people are punished in hell forever? I would just kind of go, well, uh, you know, I just think that like ECT did so easily. But like deep down, the or else was what? that I was on the receiving end of this blow-by-blow stuff. But the guy actually says that Christ has also taught us describing how bad hell can be. He says, not only do they cling to the walls of hell, and hell only has walls, um, but they cling to the walls and they feel your heat map of being burned for all eternity. Now, I don't even know how this works. How do you have that much skin? You've got an eternity's worth of skin. That is like super, super, that's a cheese grater that can really get thin. 
I don't under understand how this could work. But that's what, those are the images. And, and then the next thing was, so don't you want to go to heaven? Evangelism by terrorism. Right there, folks. That is exactly what happened. So, eternal conscious criminal. This is what grows to prominence because, um, well, number one, because Augustine was a genius. And he was just a theological genius. But also because he had this guy that, that um, was in charge of the Roman government and also became in charge of the Roman church. And Constantine, Constantine got saved. And that was a really good thing and also kind of a really bad thing, if you study the history. Um, but Constantine decided that that was the way it was. So these were the same guys that then came up with the idea that eternal conscious torment wasn't enough. They were actually going to launch into this thing called the Crusades. Because as if eternity wasn't bad enough, let's speed up the process and get these Muslims there quicker. So that's eternal conscious torment. The view that's held there is that our soul is like a rock. And that it never ceases to exist. But you're conscious and you feel it. Your nerves and every element of your being is aware and awake. Yet you're not burned up like a rock in a fire. Believe that. Eternal end or annihilationism. Nope. This view is that our soul is like paper and that we're burned up. And that is the end. So this view is actually that when you are sentenced to hell, you are in this important punishment. You're sent to the fire, you're burned up, and that's it. You're done. And, and for the people that, that um, get confused about how, well, what about the eternity part of this? Like, well, there's a lot of different stuff because we don't have time to get into the fact that the creed actually doesn't say that it's a resurrection of the spirit, but the creed says the resurrection of the body. We don't have time to even go there. But what I do want to mention is that how is it that your spirit gets tortured? Because when you imagine people being tortured in hell, you imagine, where's the body? What spirit pain were they ripping off? So, it, it is the, the idea of this annihilationism is the thought that, that um, you, it's eternal like the death penalty. Just using this as an example, okay? So the death penalty is eternal in that your life is over. But it doesn't, if, if, if you're talking about the electric chair, it, it, it doesn't mean you're eternally electrified. That's not the penalty. The penalty is that there's a punishment, but the effects of that punishment are forever. So this is what, and it's come back this way in the scripture, that annihilationism is essentially says that your punishment is, 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 is immediate, but the effects of that are eternal because you're annihilated. Don't know any other way to say it. Um, eternal conscious torment is about a life of eternal loss, while annihilationism or the eternal end is, a, um, is a, a eternal loss of life. So you lose life and you have it forever eternally. The third that was um, a little bit more rare, but still not uncommon. In fact, the guy that was that presided and was the chief over the council that came up with what Christian orthodoxy is, Christian Brethren would usually be one of my favorite theologians, held to what's called universalism. Universalism 
is the key word that's appearing taught at this university is purify. So they taught that all fire purifies. And this is the eternal offer of that. This view actually teaches that in the end, all will be redeemed and restored. Now, before anybody totally freaks out, all of these views were found within the early church. And I would like to suggest to you, I didn't go this far, but you could probably find elements of all these views in Luke that if you brought each of them into a room individually and asked them, what do you think happens in the afterlife? They would probably all have different answers. And it was okay. So if, if there's something on it that you walk away from this and you're like, nope, nothing's changing, all them folks are going to burn, but I'm good to go. If that's the way you land, then that's fine. But you also cannot, you don't have any biblical or Christian grounds to say to somebody else and say, you know, you know what, I think that God's really has no end and he can recommend whoever he wants at any point can't there is no room to call either one of those out does that make sense i think that's the once again major humility in this story so i'm going to read you a note from uh the the stand of a pentecostal friend this person is justifying why this is so accurate the dreadfulness of hell deepens our grateful praise for the salvation we have in Jesus. Hell is what we deserve, and hell is what to experience on the cross in our place. Believing the truth about hell motivates us to persuade people to be reconciled to God. By God's grace, those of us who are trusting Christ have been rescued from those horrible death chambers. He's justifying that what you were created in darkness. Think about that. How can we love people and at least speak kindly to them about the realities of eternal damnation and God's glorious reconciliation? Clearer visions, listen to the wording, clearer visions of hell will give us greater love for both God and people. The clearer we see the torment compassion of hell, the clearer we will love God and love people. That's what the guy who came up with this theology Does this make any sense? The more violent the punishment visited on Christians, the clearer the love of God and our love of people must be. If this is our lens that we have for his love, then God is right. So because of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip through some of this, and I'm actually even going to skip through some of the passages that are on your sheet. Um, but the things that I do want to hit in this context is Matthew chapter 25, um, because Matthew chapter 25 is one of the most interesting views to talk about hell from the beginning in the New Testament, 12 times talked about hell, almost all the time in Jesus' passage. So Jesus talks about in this passage, um, the, the sheep and the goats, if you remember the story, you've got the sheep that are separated out from the rest, people like the goats that are separated from the rest. He speaks to the sheep and says, get away from me, I never knew you, all that business. And we immediately look at this passage and we say, this is heaven and hell. This is what happens at the judgment. Has anybody ever heard that talk with the sheep and the goats? That's what happens. Well, interestingly enough, 
never at any point ever in the context of that passage does it mention the afterlife. Ever. This is what we call reading into the text. So when you actually look at the passage, the thing that's interesting is, and we don't even have time to get into the theology element of it, but, but when you look at this, you really do have to understand, first of all, that that is not what he's talking about. And for those of you, it, let's say like this is the, the rule. So here, let's, let's be literalist for now. Remember what we talked about last Thursday. So let's play the literalist game. So if we're literalists, number one, sheep, uh, uh, well, essentially livestock and animals are excluded. If you're totally literalist. We go full literalist. So let's let's step it back just a touch from condemning all goats, literal livestock animals, to its own torment. But let's let's step that back just a touch. So if we are being literal here, and it does mean heaven or hell, the right and the left, the good and the bad, if that is what it means, then shouldn't we see what separates the two? Because, number one, what the good are defined as doing are caring for the poor, I hadn't seen this before. It uses the term outcast or refugee, foreigner. How you treat others is what defines as a sheep or goat. And I think the most fascinating part of this is these are not sins. These are sins of omission. It's not, it never says, or suggests that the goats are mean to the other. Just that they didn't have to. That's that's a big deal. It's not saying that they were violent towards the poor or that they hated the poor. It's that they gave them away. So if you want to play the literalist game about heaven and hell, let's play it and let's look at the context and see what that says. But when Jesus drew the line, and actually furthermore, I don't believe it's talking about heaven and hell because what he defines is those that care for the poor, those that care for the needy, those that care for the sick, and those that care for the other, those that aren't like them. He defines those people that do those things as you are welcoming the kingdom of God. He never mentions heaven. What he says is every time you do that, the kingdom of God has become more near and present. Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, Oprah Winfrey. He's praying to anything and everything. That's what we're doing in that context. So what did Jesus reveal to us? Luke chapter 6, verse 27, and we'll just read 33 through 36. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to them that hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. For if you love them that love you, what thank have you? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good for them that do good to you, what thank have you? For sinners do the same. 
If you lend to them, would you help to receive? What thank have you received through the faith? But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. I'm going to say it again. Love people with no care for reciprocation. With no thought for the return. Give with no thought for the return. That's what Jesus says to do. And he says that when you do this, you will be rewarded greatly and you will be demonstrating that you are sons of your Father, the highest. For he is kind to the unthankful and the wicked. Jesus talks about hell in the Greek instruction. He uses the Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is really, really important. We're not going to burn that up when we go down there. It's scary. What you find in Gehenna is, first of all, I'm going to show you a picture of literally a picture of hell that Jesus talks about. Everybody ready for this? Okay. There it is.
So Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 23, 33. We are nothing but snakes in the grass, the offspring of Satan and vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell if you don't come in repentance? Jesus says this again in Luke 13. And what he's talking about in both of these passages are this thought that if you don't change your ways, if you don't stop being payback, violence, vengeance, unforgiveness people, if you don't start living like the model that God gave you to live, if you don't do that, it will be the death of you. And literally, hell is on the way. And what I think is interesting is you find this all throughout Jesus' ministry. All of it. You find this most notably where Jesus spoke about Jesus and his his judgment in the parable of Lazarus. Now, I don't have a Bible, so I can't quote these on you. But before I leave, I will ask you to pray on Mother's Day. Are you still praying? Are you going to pray? I love that he's kind of pointing and
did not invite people to join the group or to get a ticket or to have it. He only shared the gospel of the kingdom. That message is one of radical inclusivity, inviting people to experience the rule and the presence of God in our lives now. Actually, I find it fatally inclusive. Jesus never offered people tickets to heaven. He only offered them a life of radical inclusivity where they could experience and live within the life-giving presence of God called the kingdom now. That is the message of Jesus. The criteria for entering this kingdom is simple faith. We live this out, defined by calling, salvation, by obedience to Jesus. This is why the apostles never mention heaven or hell in any of the 16 messages defined in the book of Acts. 16 different messages or findings or defining the apostles in the book of Acts. Never one time do we see them mentioning heaven or hell. In fact, this section makes heaven look plausible. I would go as far as to say, if you can't preach the gospel without appealing to afterlife listeners, then you can't preach the gospel. So for some, they'll ask, so are you saying that all non-Christians are going to be punished, ultimately punished by God forever? No, I would simply say there's not anything Jesus said that would lead you to believe that. The follow-up usually is, then what's the point of the gospel? To which I would simply answer, you don't miss the point at all. Because people's immediate response to me, or immediate response in this regard, if if your question is, are you saying that all non-Christians are not going to spend all eternity in hell being punished by God, or by demons, or by Satan, or by anything, if that's the question, my answer is, so there's nothing Jesus said that leads you to think that then the question here is, then what's the point of the gospel? To which I say, you've missed the point of the gospel. The reference in Matthew 25, the parable of the kingdom of goats, the idea of this is not a a thought of a magic prayer or an in or out. The thought is always, how do we reach the other? So in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, these 16, Jesus tells a story that I need to make sure and remind you is very, very, very familiar to the Jewish mind. That's culture. You know how we have kind of those stories that we tell that just get passed on and we really don't even know what it means anymore. It's just something that we say. Well, that is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man at that time. Jesus is quoting the story. He's telling them a story that they already know. It was very common in their culture at that time. And he adds something at the end of the story that's very unique that actually adds a twist to it. So the story says that rich, uh, a rich man lived very well. Uh, it says he ate and eat every day. He covered himself. So he's still kind of purple and had brown after having to wear that kind of mantle. He's covered. Um, and when you see the idea of the rich man, he's this guy that has everything right, uh, everything is perfect, but just outside of his gated community laid a man named Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar and had absolutely nothing. In fact, he would have been happy just to have a few crumbs from the rich man's table. And though they exist so close in proximity, the rich man never seems to notice Lazarus simply because Lazarus is disinterested 
sacrifice. Jesus is good for the Pharisees. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's the context. Not heaven or hell. You can't serve God and money. The Pharisees had lacked a mark of sacrifice because the Pharisees loved money. They even had a doctrine derived from the scripture that taught that wealth and riches were the sign of God's blessing and favor. So the richer you were, the more loved and favored by God you were. They were the original prosperity gospel. That's what the Pharisees were. And they do this in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 does allude to the fact that the more money you have is an indicator of how much God loves you. So for Jesus to look at the leaders, the religious leaders, and say you can't serve God and money, they laughed at him because it was a, it was a ridiculous thought to them. It was so contrary to everything they believed. This was the context of Lazarus and the rich man when Jesus gives this parable. So Jesus, in this context, tells a familiar story addressing their greed and lack of compassion. And as the story goes on, both Lazarus and the rich man die. They are both found in Hades. This is not hell. Hades is a Greek word used a few times in the New Testament that is essentially the New Testament version of Sheol, which once again is Jewish people talking. So it's just a Greek version of Sheol. It's the place of the dead. So when Jesus has the keys to death and the grave, the grave is Sheol or Hades. And it's this place where the dead go. And he's using it in their language. He's saying things they would understand. If Jesus started talking about a lake of fire, they would have had an idea of what he was talking about. He wouldn't have done that. So he says that they have been found to die and go to this place called Hades. And this, in this familiar Jewish story, they're both in Hades, and they experience it very differently. You find Lazarus in the arms of Abraham, in the bosom of Abraham. But the rich man describes the torment as flame. The rich man is tormented, and Lazarus is now comforted. The rich man yells out to Abraham, as he would not dare speak to Lazarus. There's a point to be made there. Notice that the rich man doesn't yell out to Lazarus to go get him a drink of water. He yells out to Abraham to tell Lazarus to go get him a drink of water. Hey, Abraham, can't you send Lazarus to get to fe- fetch me some water? Doesn't that indicate that nothing in the heart of the rich man has changed? He still considers Lazarus not only a servant in his eyes, but beneath his station to even speak to him. Abraham answers and says, you can't, I can't. You see, in, in, in the scripture, you actually find, and we, we, we make it holy, and this is in our Bibles, but we have to understand, seven versions of this story is listed in various Jewish manuscripts, and they're so regular as common folklore leading up to this point. So the context is vital to understanding this. It'd be like saying Paul revealed warts to these guys. It means nothing. Like the, the things that mean something to us, like liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like as soon as you say that, every good American puts their right hand over their heart. But to somebody from Israel, it would have meant nothing. Well, that's what's in the world. So he says this to these guys. And Jesus just adds 
something that's really interesting and that fits to the story. The part about the five brothers, the reason I believe he does this is he takes a classic story that they are well aware of and he puts it into today. So he adds the bit about Lazarus saying, can you at least send somebody to go tell my brothers? Remember that? So this is not a, 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 a description of hell. This is not a description, because if it was, if I, if what I've always been taught is right, and this is the version of the afterlife, why are they in thin clothes? If everything I've been taught is right, like immediately all of our doctrine, the house of cards that it is, starts to get shaky pretty quick. And so it's not that. What he's saying is, don't you understand? Abraham looks back at him and says, don't you understand? You've learned nothing. And Jesus pulls us back into the current moment and says, because don't you understand that he's always, he's already been talking about God or money. They're greedy. And he uses a common story that's been used many, many times through history so that in the end there's going to be a role reversal. But now he has to shift about resurrection. And he begins to speak prophetically about his own resurrection. And he looks at the Pharisees and says, because Abraham tells the rich man, even if somebody was resurrected, your brothers wouldn't believe. Jesus was resurrected, and still the Pharisees didn't believe. And he also, in the midst of that story, the way he says this, I love that it's this idea of him saying, excuse me, Abraham even says, your, your brothers have the law and the prophets. They've got enough. Because Jesus has already said that the law and the prophets, if you read it well, adds up to hell. So they believe that, and that's not enough. So, this is how it works. So you look at the teaching of Jesus and you find hell is the love of God with you. You find Paul in Romans speaking in line with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him drink. If he hold on to his anger and refuse to love, that will be like hot coals of fire upon your head. You think Paul is teaching people how to get even? Even though he got somebody really bad in in ninth grade, in a defense class class. Does that sound like the point? Or is he describing how this works? Their flows from the heart of God are river of fire that there's nothing but pure love. And this is God's single disposition towards all things and everything. To those that will respond to the fire in his grace and his love, his restoration and his forgiveness, it will be felt as the warmth of his fiery passion and incarceration. But to those that refuse and reject God's love, those that want to cultivate bitterness and their anger and their prejudice and their hate, the same love will be experienced in the same it will be like hot coals upon your head. So if your question is, do I believe in hell? Let me be clear. Of course you do. Just say the word to it. Could everybody just wake up your neighbor and tell him, of course he does. Right? Of course I do. I believe in the literal hell that is seen in this age through war, hatred, violence, and bitterness. And I also believe in the present and post-mortem hell still receiving God's love. But most importantly, I agree with everything Jesus said. But that does
doesn't mean that I have to agree with everything that's smug, mean-spirited, Bible-thumping know-it-alls have said about God. They do not get to dictate what Jesus said about hell. And I'm very leery of making claims of certitude about precisely what is meant by hell and exactly who souls in it. I think it's extraordinarily dangerous and detrimental to the soul to go through life thinking that everybody except people like me are going to wind up in hell. In fact, as a theologian says, that that belief must certainly be the background of hell. The thought that everybody that's not like me is going to hell must certainly be the background of hell. If you want to find your way to hell in this life, one way to get there would be to assume that everybody unlike you is going there. The idea that all Christians upon death are received into heavenly mansions of eternal bliss while all non-Christians are dragged to an eternal torture chamber is more the product of popular and pagan myths than anything derived from the love of Jesus. This arrogant posture has been a blight upon the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would like to close with a thought experiment. And I'm using this uh, this is not something that I came up with, but something that I think is a good way to close my remarks. Two women named Becky and Lorraine Bautista are born on opposite sides of the world on the same day. Becky, born in Kathmandu, India, and Bautiste, born in Kabul, Afghanistan. Becky is a cultural Christian. She grows up in, in a land where some version of Christianity is dominant. And while she is a Christian, she's the worst kind. She's mean and judgmental. She has a big Bible, but she mostly uses it to rake the promises of God to herself and cling its curses to others, not like her. She's petty. She's uncompassionate and always seemingly involved in an argument of some kind. But she consoles herself with the fact that when she dies, she will go to heaven, which she's really looking forward to because it will be filled with people just like her. She won't have to see or hear from these other religions anymore, and she has a particularly strong contempt for Muslims, and she's especially comforted in knowing that she won't have to be around those kinds anymore. This sounds like heaven to her. Then there's Bautiste, who was also born on the same day. She worships God the only way that she knows how in a religion that is entirely dominant in her culture. She's kind and charitable and known for her compassion for others. She tends to the poor and the sick, and many comment that she gives no regard for what someone might believe that only spiritual beings do. She welcomes strangers and gives dignity to all that she meets. And in a strange twist of fate, they both die on exactly the same day. What happens next? Is your theology such that you are forced to say that Becky is escorted to her finally appointed mansion of bliss while Bautiste is dragged into a dark dungeon of eternal torture? This is a monstrous theology that is utterly contrary to the spirit of the gospel. The gospel is good news. And I would suggest that the news is actually far better than you have perceived. You might argue, well, only Jesus saves. And I would say, amen. So who are you to tell him who he saves? Jesus is Lord. 
and he can say whoever he wants without asking your permission to do it. You might say, well, that doesn't fit my system. And I say, then hell is your system. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. 
For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.